This episode is brought to you today by Damsel in Defense, a U.S.-based company premiering in personal protection products. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Damsel in Defense, equipping, empowering, and educating women to protect themselves and their families. His name has reached a legendary status that others could only hope for. Conversations about his life and times inspire volumes and volumes of both fact and fiction. Books, movies, songs, newspaper articles, debates, websites. The name itself, Jesse James. Probably one of the most recognizable in American history. He was young, he was handsome, and he won America's sympathies when his family was wronged by the government. America loves a bad boy who loves his mama. His infamy would be sealed when he was shot in the back by a member of his own gang for the reward money. If there's one thing America loathes, it's a coward. So while Jesse James may have died at only the age of 33, his story lives on. But was he a ruthless killer, or was he the Robin Hood of the Midwest? Was he in it for the money, or was he in it for the justice? Hero or villain? It's a name everyone knows. Love him or hate him, no one can get enough of Jesse James. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. September 5th, 1847. Jesse Woodson James is born in Clay County, Missouri to father Robert James and mother Zerelda. This much we know for sure. We also know that he had an older brother, Frank, and a younger sister named Susan. In April of 1850, Robert James leaves his family either to preach to the gold miners or to find gold in California. Whichever the reason, he doesn't last long and dies a few months later of cholera. The James children are raised by Dr. Reuben Samuel when Zerelda marries him in 1855 and they go on to have a few more children. So here we are in 1855, and as you know in America, things are starting to heat up about the slave states and the non-slave states. The James Samuel Farm is a slave-holding family, and they are firm believers that the government shouldn't have any right to take away their property, which they believed the slaves to be. So, at first opportunity, Frank James, older than Jesse by five years, goes to enlist to fight for the South in 1861. When Missouri became a state, it was entered in as a slave state, but it has always been a state divided. Now, without getting deep into the politics of things, and I am no Civil War expert, but Missouri seemed almost in its own war with itself. There was a lot of infighting, as those against slavery were only slightly less in number than those pro-slavery. A few things happened that are important for the molding of a very young, impressionable Jesse James in these first few years. When Frank joins the Confederate side, he is captured pretty early on and must commit to switch sides before he is released. He says he's going to, but at his first opportunity, he joins the bushwhackers led by William Quantrill. His family feels the heat for it. His stepfather was tortured for information of where the raiders would be hanging out. What this amounts to is that he was hung and released, hung and released, and hung again, and then they just decided to leave. Jesse was in the back of the house while this was going on, being whipped and beaten with the handle of a gun. He came around to the front of the house and sees his mother attempting to cut Dr. Samuel down, so he helps her. This abuse causes so much damage to the head of the household that he is no longer able to work and his brain is permanently damaged. Zerelda, who is pregnant at the time, is taken to jail. 
She is only released when she signs a statement to be loyal to the Union. Well, I can tell you right now she had her fingers crossed when she signed that paper. She was not going to snitch, and she was not going to go back on what she believed was right, and that's exactly what she passed on to her boys. Jesse was still too young to enlist, but watched as the Union soldiers and the militia would hang Southern sympathizers and set their homes on fire. In his house, for the way his family was treated, and for what Missouri militia was doing to his neighbors, was called to action. Vengeance needed to be taken. His family had been insulted, and their mother instilled strong values in her boys that they will not stand for such treatment. The Bushwhackers was a group of pro-Confederate guerrilla fighters. They were not soldiers, did not wear a uniform, did not comply with rules of warfare, but more or less took justice into their own hands, as they took care of both Union soldiers, Union supporters, and Northern militia. Frank James would participate in the raid on Lawrence, Kansas, slaughtering more than 200 unarmed civilians. On August 21, 1863, a group of raiders led by William Quantrell pounced on the sleeping city pre-dawn and went about destroying the properties and the lives in it. Every home was plundered, the inhabitants were murdered, and the whole town was set ablaze. By the time they rode away, according to the Leavenworth Daily Conservative, quote, Lawrence was one mass of smoldering ruins and crumbling walls. Only two houses were left upon the street. About 125 houses in all were burned, and only one or two escaped being ransacked, and everything of value carried away or destroyed, end quote. The backlash of this massacre caused Union General Thomas Ewing to evacuate four counties that bordered the Missouri-Kansas state line in order to give the guerrilla fighters less support, supplies, and hiding spaces on the Missouri side. The families were moved out, and many of their farms were burned. This included the James Samuel family as well. Jesse's family was shipped off to Nebraska. I don't think their farm was one of the ones that were burned, though, because they were able to come back to it at a later date and it was still there, so I didn't find anything saying that it had to be rebuilt. By the time this happened, though, Jesse was long gone, filled with anger and hate, and not being able to join the Confederate Army, he fell in with the Bushwhackers under the leadership of William Anderson, who would go down in history as Bloody Bill Anderson. This became Jesse's leader, teacher, his mentor, and at 16, before the brain has had the opportunity to develop a rational state of mind, he thrived on his emotions to make his decisions. And his emotions told him that revenge is the right thing to do. I found this quote, but I don't know who said it, but it fits perfectly here. It says, The more one does an immoral action or recommends an immoral action for others, the more it becomes part of one's character to be the type of person who condones that immoral action. End quote. September 27, 1864, Centralia, Missouri. Quantrill's men murder 22 unarmed Union soldiers heading home on leave. Butchered and murdered 150 Federals. Tortured, beheadings, disembowelments, untamed mutilation. Jesse would have seen this and would have taken part. He was there. Jesse James was immersed in bloodshed. This group operated outside the rules of warfare. They created their own rules. And they made Jesse feel proud by raising him in the ranks. His lust for revenge and bloodshed would be rewarded by those he respected. The Bushwhackers' War was very savage and bloody, fought at close range. The Union reports say that there was an above-average number of headshots, which indicates that they were up close and personal with their targets. They would slash throats, break bones, take scalps, cut off ears and noses. They were working off of blind rage. They weren't after justice. They were after blood. And the leader of their band, Bloody Bill Anderson, was the most bloodthirsty of them all. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it 
and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougere. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now, real history, not just the dates and battles, and I've discovered that others do too. So I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. April 9, 1865. General Robert E. Lee surrenders to Ulysses S. Grant. The Civil War is over. Quantrill and his various bands of assassin and destroyers do not accept the outcome. He is still leading raids across the Midwest, luring the soldiers out and then ambushing them, not sparing a single life. Somewhere in this time, Jesse gets shot by a Union soldier in the lung. He's forced to go into hiding to save his life, and he chooses his aunt's home in Tennessee. There he is nursed back to health by his cousin, who later becomes his wife. Don't, don't say it. I eh, know, that's another topic for another episode. But in the meantime, while he's hiding away, the people he idolizes most both perish. William Quantrill gets a taste of his own medicine and follows a small band of Union soldiers, and then his men fall into a Union ambush near Taylorsville, Kentucky. Quantrill is shot in the chest and taken prisoner. On June 6, 1865, he dies from his wounds at a Louisville, Kentucky military prison hospital. 1864, Bloody Bill Anderson is tracked down by a former Union commander and is lured into an ambush. He is shot twice in the back and his body is put on display. By October of 1865, all of the James Samuel family are back under one roof in their Missouri homestead. The two brothers, without a leader, decide to create a gang of their own with a set of other brothers that they got to know during their guerrilla days. Jim, Bob, John, and Cole, the youngers. This is where it gets tricky trying to give you an honest and factual biography of the legendary man. He went completely underground. Not literally, of course, but he took himself out of the system, as it were. There are no medical records, data records, purchase records. He skulked around from place to place in well-chosen route of southern supporters who believed in his plight. Oh yes, by this time, Jesse James went into full-on victim mode. When he did speak out, which was surprisingly often, he claimed that his actions were because of the persecution of his beliefs. He would tell anyone who would listen about his very strong political viewpoints and how he and his family were being persecuted. What else was he to do? Who else was going to stand up for the Southerner who's had everything taken away from them? And the people bought it, and he became a legend. I think, too, that his legend status also comes from not having any kinds of paper trail, because people can make up or fill in the blanks with whatever they want. We don't really know what the gang did with all that money. He didn't have fancy houses or cars. He didn't rain gifts down on his mother, who he claims is one of his favorite people. His wife and children were left with nothing. They had nothing to survive on. He was fond of a good photo op, though. But other than that, where did the money go? On the other hand, we don't have any stories of people who came into his Robin Hood persona, either. Even if they were sworn to secrecy during his life, there would be an outpouring of people coming forward wanting to tell the world what the famed, misjudged outlaw did for his people. But that didn't happen. 
His character was never defended as a hero. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll give you all the information that I have found, and then you can decide for yourself. So we don't really know what this new guerrilla-trained James Younger gang have been up to for four whole years. These days, looking back, the James gang gets the credit, or the blame, whichever way you'd like to look at it, for almost every robbery that happens over that period of time. But, just to get you started thinking, here is February 13, 1866. A group of outlaws carried out the very first daytime bank robbery in the history of the United States. The robbers were bold and cocky. They commanded attention, took charge of the building, ruthlessly beat up the cashier, and shot an unarmed clerk, and escaped with almost $60,000 worth of cash, gold, and bonds from the Clay County Savings Association. They never laid claim to this robbery, but it became the M.O. and even their trademark for future robberies. But I'm not saying it was the James Younger gang. It's not until December of 1869 that Jesse James actually gets named publicly for a bank robbery. This was the bank in Gallatin, Missouri. There were only two robbers, and we are to believe that it is Frank and Jesse. They were all set to escape with about $700, but then they think they are in the same room with the man who gets credit for bringing down Bloody Bill Anderson. To Jesse James, this was enemy number one, Samuel Cox. So he shoots this man in the brain, and the two leave without any money. It turns out to be the wrong Samuel Cox. But Jesse James is now in the public eye. At this point, does he run and hide? Well, yes. But by way of the Missouri Liberty Tribune addressing the governor of Missouri himself. And so his love affair with publicity begins. June 24, 1870. Dear Sir, I and my brother Frank are charged with the crime of killing the cashier and robbing the bank at Gallatin, Missouri, December 7, 1869. I can prove by some of the best men in Missouri where I was the day of the robbery and the day previous to it, but I well know if I was to submit to an arrest that I would be mobbed and hanged without a trial. The past is sufficient to show that bushwhackers have been arrested in Missouri since the war, charged with bank robbery, and they most all have been mobbed without trials. It is true that during the war I was a Confederate soldier and I fought under the black flag, but since then I have lived as a peaceable citizen and obeyed the laws of the United States to the best of my knowledge. But as to them mobbing me for a crime that I am innocent of, that is played out. As soon as I think I can get a just trial, I will surrender myself to the civil authorities of Missouri and prove to the world that I am innocent of the crime charged against me. And on it went. He would rob and plunder, and then claim his innocence by way of letters sent in to the local papers. The nation's eyes were upon him as he played the victim, and he reveled in it. He would later be esteemed by a southern sympathizer that also happened to be an editor of the newspaper, John Newman Edwards. He would happily print Jesse's letters in columns that pled his innocence, but if he did commit the crime, it was obvious why he felt the need to. Edwards found his spokesperson. He built up the reputation around Jesse James and let the world take it from there. He would write, quote, There are things done for money and for revenge, of which the daring of the act is the picture, and the crime is the frame it may be set in, he wrote. A feat of stupendous nerve and fearlessness that makes one's hair rise to think of it, with a condiment of crime to season it, becomes chivalric, poetic, superb, end quote. He felt that since James and Younger Gang chose to rob during the daylight hours and all, in your face, I guess, that their deeds were far more noble than those who would prefer to sneak around under the cover of night. Stupendous nerve and fearlessness, he says. T.J. Stiles, author of Jesse James, Last Rebel of the Civil War, paints the portrait for us as to the many reasons Jesse James was not only forgiven, but his story was romanticized even a century later. He writes, quote, It was the beginning of Jesse's rise from the common criminal to symbolic hero, of a legend that resonated with the lives of Missouri's sessionists. He and Edwards began to project a glorified version of what the rebels felt they had endured in war and reconstruction. 
The mythical Jesse James they created refused to apologize for fighting for a just cause. He refused to lay down his arms and self-respect and was being persecuted as a result. End quote. By June of 1871, a huge score on a robbery in Corydon, Iowa, brings in the big dogs. The bank itself hires the famed Pinkerton Agency to put a stop to the banditry and catch those responsible. Alan Pinkerton's son, Robert Pinkerton, answers the call. They are able to track the bandits and a shootout occurs. Frank is hit but manages to escape. All manage to escape. And soon after, a letter appears in the paper professing his innocence. And back and forth it goes. It's in September of 1872 that they switch tactics a bit. They choose to go after the Kansas City Industrial Exposition. They come away with over $8,000 in cash, and it was a breeze compared to the bank robberies and stagecoach holdups. The letter to the paper, this time around, went unsigned, but it had all the telltale marks of Jesse James. And this is the first time the idea is planted for the whole Robin Hood angle. The Kansas City Times in 1872 publishes, quote, As a great deal has been said in regard to the robbery which occurred at the Kansas City Exposition Grounds, I will give a few lines to the public as I am one of the party who perpetrated the deed. A great many say that we, the robbers, deserve hanging. What have we done to be hung for? It is true that I shot a little girl, though it was not intentional, and I am very sorry for the child that was shot. And if the parents will give me their addresses through the columns of Kansas City Weekly Times, I will send them money to pay her doctor's bill. And as to Mr. Wallace, I never tried to kill him. I only shot him to let go of my friend. If I had been so disposed, I could have shot him dead. Just let a party of men commit a bold robbery and the cry is to hang them. But President Ulysses Grant and his party can steal millions and it's all right. It is true, we are robbers, but we always rob in the glare of day and in the teeth of the multitude, and we never kill, only in self-defense. When men refuse to open their vaults and safes to us, and when they refuse to unlock us, we kill. But a man who is enough of a fool to refuse to open a safe or a vault when he is covered with a pistol ought to die. There is no use for a man to try and do anything when an experienced robber gets the go on him. If he gives the alarm or resists, or refuses to unlock, he gets killed. And if he obeys, he is not hurt in the flesh, but he is in the purse. Some editors call us thieves. We are not thieves. We are bold robbers. It hurts me very much to be called a thief. We are bold robbers, and I am proud of the name, for Alexander the Great was a bold robber, and Julius Caesar, and Napoleon Bonaparte, and Sir William Wallace. Please rank me with these, not with these Grantites. Grant's party has no respect for anyone. They rob the poor and rich, and we rob the rich and give to the poor. As to the author of the letter, the public will never know. I will close by hoping that Horace Greeley will defeat Grant, and then I can make an honest living, and then I will not have to rob, as taxes will not be so heavy. Quote. Poor little robber. That spin in that letter, though. I almost got dizzy. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out. I'm going to skip forward to July 21st of 1873, and that is only because that's the first time the James Younger gang gets the credit for their first train robbery in Rock Island, Iowa. This gets him their first four-digit reward offer. Most offers cap out at the $300 range, but the Jesse and Frank James score the $1,000 tier. They're in the big leagues now. But again, we can't be certain that this robbery was executed by the James gang, but the one in Gads Hill, Missouri, in January of 1874 sure was. Do you want to know how I know? Jesse James left behind a pre-written press release to be sent to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to report on the event. <laughs> it turns out that his BFF, John Newman Edwards, got promoted as editor to the largest St. Louis publication of the time. With this blatant disregard of law, things really start heating up. 
The lawmen are frustrated at their inability to track down the gang members, and it doesn't help that they are publicly humiliated around every turn. And the public? It is divided. He is both vilified and romanticized in newspaper editorials. Some recognize him as the scoundrel, but others buy into his mission of saving the Midwest from the persecution of the people. Everywhere the people look, his name is in print. The dime store novels are having the time of their lives with record sales of fictitious tales of robbery and bravery. He is the subject matter of countless news articles, and his wanted poster is very real. And yet, he could walk right up next to you, sit at the counter beside you, stand behind you in line, and you would never know it was him. He was a hero in the Midwest and a vile traitor to the colors of the flag in other parts of the country. And yet, on that note, it is his own people he was robbing. He's not robbing the North and bringing it back to water the grounds of the Midwest. He's robbing from the very people he claims to be fighting for. The author T.J. Stiles sees it too, and went into much greater depth in his book, but in short he writes, quote, It is essential to explaining why Jesse James became a political figure. It is well known that he painted his outlaw actions in terms of his Confederate loyalties and wartime experiences, but if his war experiences were all about defending the state from invaders, why didn't he spend his time robbing Kansans? Most of his victims were Missourians, end quote. The war between right and wrong, good and evil, escalate when one of the Pinkerton men, Joseph Wincher, is found dead. It is known that he is on the trail of Frank and Jesse, and his body is found in March of 1864. At some point soon after, there was a shootout. John Younger is shot dead, but they were able to kill two of the Pinkerton men. Following their usual robber rule book. They commit the crime, and then the two brothers' gangs go under to wipe the trail clean. The only activity we have on record is a marriage. Jesse James marries Zerelda Mims on April 24, 1874. So, not only is she his first cousin, but she also is named after his mother. Is that not weird to anyone else but me? By December of the same year, they are back at it in Kansas where they have a huge take of $30,000. A train robbery in Muncie, Kansas. But now, the tide is about to turn. It's January 25th, 1875. A group of Pinkerton men, accompanied by Unionist neighbors, come to the property of the James Samuel farm. Their intel claims that the James brothers are hiding out inside. As the story goes, there is no conversation or knocking at the door. The men's objective was clear. They tossed several explosive devices known as Greek fire at the house. One went through the window where the family was seated. Zerelda Samuel, Frank and Jesse's mother, saw it. She reached down to grab it and throw it in the fireplace, and as she let it go, it went off, requiring her to have her right arm amputated below the elbow. The bomb ended up killing Jesse's half-brother, eight-year-old Arthur Samuel, in the process. Dr. Reuben Samuel was also seriously injured, but he gets zero press. For years, the Pinkerton Agency tried to claim that it was a flare that accidentally exploded, but a letter was found in Alan Pinkerton's belongings that outlined the entire plan. The handwritten letter was sent to a lawyer of Liberty, Missouri, who was the local contact with the agency. It told the detailed instructions, including, quote, Above everything, destroy the house. Let the men take no risk. Burn the house down, end quote. Needless to say, instead of stopping the James gang from robbing banks, stagecoaches, and trains, they stepped it up a notch. But first, Jesse took pen to paper and retaliated against the attack in as many papers as would grant him space creating a huge wash of sympathy for the James brothers and a publicity nightmare for the highly acclaimed detective agency. Jesse sent this note to the publisher of the Clay County Tribune along with his diatribe, and the paper printed both. Even the burn this note part, which I thought was funny and very cloak and dagger on the part of James. August 4th, 1875. Note, which they published. I will be under many obligations to you to publish the enclosed article. Publish it as I have written it, 
though I wrote it in great haste. Please correct all bad spelling in the article. I have gave you nothing but the truth. There is no doubt about Pinkerton's force committing the crime, and it is the duty of the press to denounce him. It is against reason to suppose we are guilty of murder and robbery. The best men in Missouri are our friends, and it is only a question of time about us being granted full amnesty. Pinkerton has great notoriety as a detective, but we also have easily baffled him, and he has got the best of his men killed by sending them after us. He is fast losing his laurel. He wants to poison the minds of all Democrats against us. He would rejoice at our extermination. Burn this note. So, first of all, she obviously didn't burn the note. It was published right above the article. And it was not a mistake because at that time, every single word had to be painstakingly set in columns. So this made extra work for the publisher. And second, you may never know, but they didn't correct his spelling errors, which I find rather comical. But anyway, on to the actual article. I did trim it down a bit because he does tend to blather on, so you're welcome. And I quote, Pinkerton said my statement to the banner was false. If any honest man will investigate my statement and say I misrepresented anything, I will acknowledge my guilt to the world. It was Pinkerton's force that committed the crime at Mother's today. Pinkerton's men did commit the crime and it is absurd for them to deny it. Pinkerton's force crept three miles through woods to Mother's residence and fired it in seven places and hurled incendiary balls into the house to kill and cripple the entire family, then gives them over to the mercy of the flames. But Providence saved the house from being burnt, although it was saturated with turpentine and fired with combustible materials. The shell did not do fatal work, and they fled away beyond the reach of outraged justice. This is the work of Pinkerton, the man that said in his card he just wished to set himself right with the eyes of the world. He may vindicate himself with some, but he better not dare show his Scottish face again in western Missouri and let me know he is here or he will meet the fate of his comrades Captain Lull and Witcher met and I would advise him to stay in New York. But let him go where he may. His sins will find him out. He can cross the Atlantic, but every wave and white cap he sees will remind him of the innocent boy he murdered and the one-armed mother robbed of her child. Justice is slow but sure, and there is a God that will bring all to justice. Pinkerton, I hope and pray that our Heavenly Father will deliver you into my hands, and I believe he will, for his merciful and protecting arm has been around me, shielding me during all my persecution. He has watched over me and protected me from workers of blood money who are trying to seek my life, and I have hope and faith in him and believe he will protect me as long as I serve him. O oh, Pinkerton, if you have got a heart or a conscience, I know the spirit of my poor little innocent brother hovers around your pillows and that you never close your eyes, but what you will see is his poor delicate and childish form around you and him holding his shattered arm over you and you looking at the great wound in his side seeing his blood ebb away. You may vindicate yourself with some people, but God knows if you did not do the deed, it was by your force. I have made these statements because they can't be disputed. I defy man to prove one word of my statement to be false. Pinkerton, let me hear from you again. Respectfully, J.W. James. The backlash and outcry among the people caused a suit to be filed against the Pinkerton agency and a few of the men involved. But the cases were dropped, but it almost got the James and the Youngers full amnesty of their past crimes. It did not pass, but by a surprisingly narrow margin. Jesse, according to his continual letters to the editor, remained an angel even while banks and trains were getting robbed. To the Globe Democrat, he writes, Instead of my being shot and captured, I am in St. Louis with friends, well, and feeling much better than I have for years. I can't see what motive anyone can have in reporting such malicious lies as Detective Bly is certainly doing. Every bold robbery in the country is laid to us, but after a few of the robbers have been caught, and when it is seen two or three times that other people are robbing banks, maybe we will get fair play from the newspapers. In a few days, it will be seen how the James and Youngers have been lied on by owls by men as Pinkerton and Bly. I think the public will justify me in denouncing Bly, as I now do, as an unnecessary liar, a scoundrel, and a poltroon. End quote. <laughs> poltroon. Man, I love words. 
to the banner, he sends, quote, Gentlemen, as my attention has been called recently to the notice of several sensational pieces copied from the Nashville Union and the American, stating that the James and Youngers are in Kentucky, and I ask space in your valuable paper to say a few words in my defense. For ten years the radical papers in Missouri and every other state have charged nearly every daring robbery in America to the James and Youngers. It is enough persecution for the northern papers to persecute us without the papers in the south persecuting us. The land we fought for for four years to save from northern tyranny. The radical papers here in Missouri have repeatedly charged the Russellville, Kentucky bank robbery to the James and Youngers. But on the night of the 25th of January, 1875, at midnight, Sherman Bummers, led by Billy Pinkerton Jr., crept to my mother's house and hurled a missile of war in a room among a family of innocent women and children murdering my eight-year-old brother and tore my mother's right arm off and wounded several others in the family and then fired the house in seven places. I have written too much and probably not enough, but I hope to write much more to the banner in the future. I will close by sending my kindest regards to old Dr. Eve and many thanks to him for his kindness to me when I was wounded under his care. End quote. In 1876, the gang tried to pull off a bank robbery in Northfield, Minnesota. The first National Bank of Mankato was to be a feather in the bank robber's cap. Not only would the take be over $120,000, but it would be a boon for the loyal Confederates as one of the bank's major investors was a former Union Army general. The mostly unscathed James Younger gang couldn't stay lucky forever. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. September 7th, 1876, the James brothers, the Youngers, plus three others, went after their next target. Three men on the inside, negotiating, two men on the outside, guarding the door, and three men stood at the ready on the escape route. They had it mapped out, they cased the bank, they cased the town. They had their escape route down by the exact turn by turn. There was just one thing they didn't count on. The people. It was the townspeople's money in the bank, author and historian Mark Gardner writes, and as was the case with all banks at the time, those deposits were uninsured. In effect, the outlaws were robbing each citizen individually, end quote. It turned into a fiasco right from the beginning. The bank has a system. The tellers have a drawer full of cash that they can tend to customers. If they need more than that, the cashier steps in to assist. This is the first level of management that has access to the contents of the safe. If more authority is needed following that, the bookkeeper is called in. Those are our major players for the day. Frank James sticks a gun into the teller's face, telling him that this is a robbery, while the other two are keeping control of the room. The teller obediently empties his drawer into a bag, all $26.60 of it, they soon discover that the cashier is not in the building. They move up the ladder to the bookkeeper, who was Joseph Lee Haywood. Rule number one. Don't be a hero. Haywood tried to lie and say that the safe was on a timer, that he couldn't open it. When a sharp knife was placed at his throat, suddenly he remembered how to open it. Then, <sighs> oh, Haywood... He tried to say that the door was stuck, so when Frank James came over to try and open it, Haywood attempted to push him in and close the door. <sighs> the poor teller got so afraid that he attempted to make a run for it and was shot in the back. And then Haywood was shot as well. Meanwhile, outside the bank, the residents had figured out what was going on and they were not going to sit back and wait for the sheriff. The hardware store owner, J.S. Allen, shouts the alarm to anyone who could hear him that there was a bank robbery in progress. Cole Younger, who was one of the men outside the building, starts shooting at anyone who comes too close. 
The gunfire in the meantime alerts the escape crew, which Jesse was part of. They mount their horses and head straight for the thick of it, firing their guns as they go. Alan is still in his hardware store, handing out guns and ammo to anyone who will take it. Both inside and outside of the bank has gone crazy. Bullets flying everywhere. The men on the inside finally come out. James and the other two rode up, zigzagging in front of the bank, trying to give them a chance to escape. Everyone in the gang got shot somewhere. The gang left the streets thinking it was over, but soon discovered that over 1,000 men were eventually gathered to continue the chase for weeks. Jesse and Frank both got a single bullet wound, but because they knew the route so well, they were able to escape all the way to Tennessee. The younger brothers were not so lucky. All three of them got shot up pretty bad and were taken into custody. All three were given a life sentence. And the other members of the bank robbery never lived to tell about it. This was the one that turned the favor of the James gang. The St. Louis Globe Democrat reprinted a scathing article that was originally published by the Chicago Tribune on October 16, 1876, titled Missouri Outlawry. In Missouri, the Youngers and James Outlaws rode into the towns and robbed banks in broad daylight, stopped passenger trains, and after emptying the express safe, went through everybody on board the cars. In the presence of more than 10,000 people and in broad daylight, they presented their pistols at the ticket office for the Kansas City Fair Association and forced the treasurer to hand over $10,000. They murdered officers sent to arrest them, and despite their plunderings and murders, the enlisted popular sympathy in their behalf that the reward of $25,000 for their capture remained unclaimed though their whereabouts were well known and, in fact, instead of hiding, they paraded themselves publicly for the admiration of their fellow Missourians, and, had they remained in Missouri to the end of their lives, doubtless they might with impunity, have gone on with their raiding of railroad trains and have been regarded with admiring pride by their fellow citizens of that commonwealth. But they extended their field of operations to Minnesota, made their attack on the Northfield Bank, committed their dastardly murders, and to their wonderment, doubtless, they were not given their inhaled as heroic fellows who had gallantly gathered fresh laurels. End quote. The James brothers lay low in Nashville under new names for a while and try to get regular jobs and enjoy the family life. They both had wives and children now. Frank adapts and enjoys a quieter life, but Jesse, he grows restless. He is quietly assembling a group of his old Confederate friends from Missouri, and they pull off a few low-key robberies. A stagecoach, a personal robbery, then they get tired of the nickel and dime and perhaps need a rush, and he escalates back to trains. This, of course, puts him back on the radar. The people's sympathies have worn thin, and rules have definitely shifted. Add to the pressure, Thomas Crittenden, governor of Missouri, encourages the railroad corporations to offer a $5,000 reward each for the capture of Frank and Jesse James, plus another 5000 for their conviction. Frank was done. He moved his family under an assumed name all the way to Virginia. Without the support of his brother Frank, and without the trust built up from the Youngers, Jesse was a little bit more on edge. After several failed or low-take train robberies, Jesse moved his family to St. Joseph, Missouri, where he rented a home under the name of Thomas Howard. Jesse's wife, Z, was tired of always being afraid, and Jesse expressed an interest to get out of the business himself. Charlie Ford, who had been with the gang now for a minute, decided to go with him and was under Jesse's care. When they went to Kansas to scope out a bank, Jesse knew they needed one more person to pull it off, and Charlie recommended his brother, Bob Ford. This bank job, the Platte City Bank, was intended to be Jesse's last. He had found a plot of 160 acres in Nebraska that he was going to purchase with the proceeds from this final robbery. January 13, 1882. Bob and Charlie Ford had a meeting with Crittenden and get the formal agreement that if they successfully assist in the capture of Jesse James, they will receive the reward money and be pardoned of any crime. 
For two months, the Ford brothers lived with Jesse and his family. On April 3rd, after eating breakfast, Jesse James reads the newspaper and learns that one of his gang gives himself up to the authorities. April 4th was meant to be the Platte Bank robbery. This next set of events has had historians and diehard James fans debating and discussing for over 100 years. They had finished eating breakfast and taking care of the horses. Bob was in the parlor and Charlie was helping Z clean up the kitchen. Jesse comments on the heat and opens the front door to let in some fresh air. He also raises the shade in the living room, which he apparently never did. He removes his coat and vest and lay them neatly across the back of the couch. And then he removes his gun belt. Jesse's rule of thumb, he never removes his gun belt when it's not just the family. He lay it beside his coat and remarks that it might be seen by someone passing since the blinds were up. He then sits on the couch and picks up a newspaper to read. He randomly glances at the wall behind where Bob is sitting and notices that a picture is either askew or dusty. Either one. He stands, moves the cane chair over beneath the grouping, and climbs up to adjust it. In seconds, Bob Ford has his gun drawn, and before he can think, he aims, cocks the gun, and fires. The bullet goes through the base of Jesse's skull and stops just above his ear. The blast of the gun throws his body against the wall and then down on the floor where it rolls onto his back. He's bleeding from the gaping hole in the back of his head and a cut near his temple from the fall. It's 8.27 a.m. on April 3, 1882, and Jesse James is dead. On the same day as the killing, the Fords wire Crittenden to claim their reward money. The Fords turn themselves in, pleading guilty, and go over the day's events, and then were charged with first-degree murder. On April 17, 1882, Bob and Charlie were arraigned on charges of first-degree murder and sentenced to hang, but they were pardoned that same afternoon by Governor Crittenden. If you're curious about what happened to the Ford brothers or a few other loose ends, sit tight through this teeny tiny commercial break and I'll finish the story. And just a hint, if you think the Fords got their $10,000 reward and skipped off into the sunset, you're really going to want to hear this. Hello listeners, Elizabeth Bougeret here from Bag of Bones podcast. Since Stamps and Defense has become part of the Bag of Bones team, I'm pretty sure I've become their biggest fan and customer. These tools they offer are so valuable for the world we live in today, and I just don't want anyone that's important to me to be without. So around here, it's like, you get a taser, you get a striker, you get some mace. <laughs> I am giving the gift of safety for every gift this year. If you have a female in your life or you yourself need to beef up your personal security, check out our exclusive link and see what Damsel in Defense has to offer. Just a hint, check out the specials they have this month and you'll sleep better knowing your loved ones are just a little bit safer because you opted for a personal safety device instead of shoes. You can start shopping now by heading to the Bag of Bones exclusive page at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. The Ford brothers patiently waited through all of the legal mumbo jumbo to get the big payoff, but it never happened. Crittenden would later say that the reward was, quote, for the capture of Jesse James. He said, quote, there was no sort of bargain about his receiving a portion of the reward and a pardon if he would kill Jesse James. It was, of course, known that the outlaw had sworn never to be taken alive, and men who went in search of him were acquainted with this fact, end quote. Bob Ford wastes no time in posing for pictures holding the gun that shot the once-famous Jesse James, earning 10 cents per photo. And then the stage lures him, and he and his brother spend the next few years touring and acting out the final moments of Jesse's life. Chicago, New York, Boston, Connecticut. Their tour was not yet over, but audience had already grown tired of the pair. The tide had turned, and Bob was portrayed as the coward. 
Only a coward shoots an unarmed man in the back. A Chicago Daily Tribune editorial commented, quote, It was a grave mistake in allowing them any greater freedom than a comfortable cell affords, end quote. The stage career for the Fords ends in St. Louis in January of 1884. Charlie, already suffering from tuberculosis and addicted to morphine, shot himself on May 4, 1884. Bob wandered around some after that and was finally shot June 8, 1892 by an Ed O'Kelly. The story goes that he wandered into the saloon Bob ran, called his name, and when he turned, Ed shot him with both barrels of his sawed-off shotgun. He was the man who killed the man who killed Jesse James. Five months after his brother was murdered, Frank James turned himself into the governor of Missouri, stating, quote, I have been hunted for 21 years. I have literally lived in the saddle, have never known a day of perfect peace. It was one long, anxious, inexorable, eternal vigil, end quote. Three separate juries failed to convict Frank of any crime and when he died in 1915, he avoided punishment for all of his violent, murderous, selfish crimes. Jesse's wife, Z, as I had mentioned, was left with nothing. She had to support herself and her two children, six-year-old Jesse Edwards and two-year-old Mary Susan, by selling some of their personal items at the house in St. Joseph, including the family dog. She would charge ten cents admission for people to visit the house. Eventually, souvenir hunters began chipping off pieces of the fence, house, and outbuildings. The owner of the house, Henrietta Saltzman, had been renting the house for $14 a month to Jesse James, but a few weeks after his death, she kicked Z and her family out, and she moved back in and began charging visitors a quarter ahead to visit. She charged thousands of visitors and sold splinters of wood stained with Jesse's blood as mementos. And finally, his mother. Her husband had to be retired to an institution, and so she, too, had to make money from her son's death. Although she professed his innocence until her last breath, she wasn't above charging people to come by and see his grave, and for an extra quarter, if they wanted, they can take a pebble from the mound that covered him. The Kansas City Times wrote of Jesse James way back in 1872, quote, The Chivalry of Crime. There is a dash of tiger blood in the veins of all men, a latent disposition even in the bosom that is the stranger to nerve and daring, to admire those qualities in other men. And this penchant is always keener if there be a dash of sin in the deed to spice the enjoyment of its contemplation. End quote. Frank James would later say, quote, We were outlaws the moment the South lost. We had as much chance of settling down, tilling our farms, and being decent as tallow dogs chasing an asbestos cat through hell. End quote. Now I leave it to you. I lay the life and times of the notorious Jesse James at your feet for you to decipher. Hero or villain? You know, I love our weekly meetings here at Bag of Bones more and more every time, and I am so glad you decided to join me. If you love the content and are wanting to send some love back, may I suggest buying me a gallon of gas. Every single click of the link is appreciated. A little bit goes a long way. Pretty close to 50 miles to be more precise. And know that I'm out scouting for the next curious story to bring you. All the links that help benefit the show are in the show notes. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'll meet you back here next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.